We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union Podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking the Balagon Watch, uh, Gone Girl, World Baseball Classic, Brazilian Food, Top 5 U.S. Men's National Team Coaching Candidates, A Messy Night Out, and much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Wednesday, March 22nd in the year 2023? I'm doing well. You mentioned the World Baseball Classic. I'm still buzzing over that final game. Everybody last night. is buzzing yeah. about the, uh, the American pastime that has been exported to the world. And uh, the world has taken it with with both hands, uh, as if fielding a ball, and uh, made the uh, you know the double play. Um, uh, did you uh, did you check this out? Uh, people have been watching it. Uh, the numbers have been great from a Fox perspective, broadcasting this uh, this event, and we're, we're we're leaning into big events, and obviously events that have nations behind them and America behind it and all that kind of stuff. So this was right up our alley and the baseball players and teams involved, uh, they delivered. Yeah. So Japan defeated the U S in the final with, uh, Otani striking out Mike Trout for the final out. And my big takeaway here is that even people who don't like soccer dig the world cup, love the pageantry of it and would love for their sport to have an equivalent to that. Uh, Bill Simmons for years has been trying to cultivate this dynamic in basketball where he wants people to care more about international basketball and he gets mad at NBA players when they set out these tournaments and baseball too. Now uh, we saw last night, a rod comparing Otani's performance to Messi's in the world cup for Argentina. So clearly that's the model that everybody's basing this on. And yeah, it ended up being a huge success. Uh, congrats to Japan. And I can't wait for the next edition. It's going to be in 2026. Well, a couple of things I think have happened for this to happen. Uh, you know, one, you mentioned um, what what baseball is and what television is and what soccer is, let's be honest, in the United States. And, you know, the millions and millions of people that are watching it. It is part of 
you know, the the sports landscape of all of these players that we are seeing that have grown up watching soccer and just having it like any other sport out there and, you know, not being force fed it, but just seeing it and, you know, being being excited about a World Cup. So I think that that's, you know, that's 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 expected. But I think it, it confirms some things. One, it doesn't matter whether it's baseball or anything else. I think that there is a unique pride that comes with representing your country. And I think that that was on full display during this tournament. And obviously, because of our our unique and wonderfully diverse uh, um, country and you know all of the different people that we have that come from all these different places, they have these attachments. And so it lends itself uh, uh, to uh, to that. So it it doesn't matter um, who you are. Uh, I think it really played not just to the fans, but to the players. And I mentioned the pride, but also it doesn't matter how much money you're making. doesn't matter how famous you are. There is something, and I think we saw it. And you, you saw it in the way that they played, but you also saw it in the way that they talked about it and the way that they celebrated and the way that they connected where... They put on that jersey. They call it jersey in baseball, whatever. But they put it on, and it had USA, or it had Japan, or it had Mexico, or you know the list goes on and on. And that that means something, and you can't you can't buy that. That only happens in the international game of sports, and so that was uh, that was wonderful. I think it also highlighted the lack of importance that a lot of baseball games have. And, you know, they play 162 or whatever. Uh, is it 162 or 164? What, what is it? 162. 162. They play 162 games. And part of the criticism is often that they don't matter. Well, these games mattered. There was something on the line, obviously national pride. And you saw it every single throw of the ball and every single at bat. And then the other part and the final part that I think it highlighted is that while we take great pride in our baseball history and our association with baseball. The fact is that it has expanded enormously and it is starting to be, and I, and some of you would argue in many places already has been and has been for a long time, uh, an international game that has been adopted and, you know, dare I say it, uh, bettered by the rest of the world. Maybe England, uh, if you're looking for a uh, compare and contrast type of things, uh, you know, England obviously invented the game and the rest of the world uh, perfected it when it comes to soccer. And so maybe the people will, people will say the same thing about us when it comes to baseball. There was one sour note in this World Baseball Classic. Uh, New York Mets closer Edwin Diaz suffered a serious injury, much to Aaron Schechter's chagrin. Uh, looks like he might miss the season. So that was unfortunate to see. Yeah, I saw that, but... It, look, I don't want I don't want anybody to be injured, and that sucks for his team and for the fans. But it's not like he did it gardening or something like that. He did it representing his country. As far as I'm concerned, he did it for something that absolutely is worth the time and the effort and the resources. And guess what? The pain. Would he not like? To, would he like to have not been hurt? Yes. But uh, this this. This thought and this narrative out there that these guys are just out there doing something that is completely meaningless. I think that this was anything but meaningless to the players involved, to the fans involved, not just to the diehard baseball fans, but to everybody who, again, when it's USA and when it's your team, it doesn't even have to be USA. When it's your team, it doesn't matter what sport it is. People dig that and people want to watch it. And so I think this is only going to get bigger. I don't know if it's going to be Bill Simmons is big when it comes to uh, what he wants. And basketball certainly has a long way to go. But baseball certainly got it right. And it was fun to watch. Did you watch anything else, my friend? 
I've got a lot of shows going on right now. I've Whoa. got uh, Perry Mason, which I enjoy on HBO, season two of I've that. I've heard you talk about that, yeah. Yes. Uh, also got season three of Ted Lasso, new episode dropping today. I can't wait to watch it when I get home. Uh, the Mandalorian, which I'm not really enjoying this season, Ooh. but I'm, I'm going to stick with it. Okay. And then this is all the undercard to this upcoming weekend. The final season of Succession gets underway. I cannot wait. That is my favorite show on television. Yeah, you and your uh, Succession crew are pretty uh, jacked up for this. Uh, people are very, very excited. Uh, I, I just continue to watch movies that I have seen before, but I've just kind of forgotten about. I watched uh, Gone Girl the other day. I mean, I had forgotten how batshit crazy that uh, that character is in that movie. And uh, it was just nuts. Really well done. Um, and uh, and scared the crap out of me again. Uh, so I continue to go back and watch these movies. They, they're always kind of there and you just kind of flick through them because you say, ah, I've seen it, seen it, seen it. And then you get to a point where it's been so long that you forget some of the stuff that that that, that, uh, that goes on in it. So uh, that's the type of stuff that I'm doing now. Uh, Ray, light this candle? All right. Where do you want to start, my friend? Well, let's start with the U.S. men's national team. They return to action this week. Friday, they are away to Grenada. Then they'll play again Monday, home to El Salvador. Both those matches in the CONCACAF Nations League. We discussed the roster when once that dropped. Uh, there was a change. Uh, Georgi Mihailovic has replaced Timothy Weah. Uh, but otherwise, it's the same roster that was announced a few days ago. Uh, so now these matches are upon us. Uh, what are some of the big picture things that you're looking to watch? I imagine the first one would be Gio Reyna and how he conducts himself with his teammates and how he plays and where he plays on the field. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be difficult for Gio to ingratiate himself uh, or re-ingratiate himself, I guess, into this, this group. And I think that, like I said before, I think humans are, for the most part, pretty forgiving. He has been a part of the group. You know, his behavior is now well documented. But time and time again, when you hear these players, and the interesting thing about all these players coming back now is that they have to appear in front of the press. And obviously, the first question is about the situation and what's gone on. And time and time again, we are hearing players talk about uh, the situation and talk about how they're almost they're disturbed, but they're also angry that that's the story and that's what's going out. And a lot of them mention that that was dealt with when they talk about the Gio Reyna situation uh, in camp. And that was dealt with and they kind of wanted uh, to move on. So if it was dealt with, and I think pretty much everybody, and, and Greg Berhalter was clear about this too, that it was dealt with internally, then whatever penance <laughs> or apology has been made and has been done. And I think all the players, I've told you this before, Mossy. You'd be amazed what players will compartmentalize and or just completely ignore in an effort to be better on the field and in an effort ultimately to win. And I think a lot of people look at Gio Reyna as maybe I don't you know, want to go out with him or maybe I don't want to hang out with him, um, but he's a good soccer player and that's ultimately why we are here at this high, a high level. And I don't think that they're going to treat him any differently. I don't think the dynamic is going to be such that Gio is going to suffer. And any problems that he has, I think, are going to be brought upon himself. And I do think that there will be support. Say, hey, you know, you're you're a soccer player. You're part of this team. You're part of this family. Obviously, you've been brought in for a reason because the coaching staff believes you're good. You were at the World Cup for a reason. And I, I don't think anybody out there is crazy for saying that this is a bright young talent that could potentially be a great player. 
And so I think he's going to I think he's going to be fine on the field. But because of the story, we absolutely are going to be watching him. But he is not he is not the only story, but he is certainly the story that is going to break through all the clutter out there because this was a story <laughs> that was bigger than soccer and went through and it wasn't, you know, people soccer or just regular sports fans out there know this story. They're not worried about our number nine position or uh, they're not you know, interested to see how Robinson is looking coming back from an Achilles thing. And those are the types of things that that you and I and many soccer people are worried about. But this one got to the point where even people that weren't soccer fans were were talking about the arena situation. The other major talking point is the center forward position, both because of the two guys that are there and then somebody who's technically not on the roster, but might show up for one of these games. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you've got Pepe and DK, two guys who at different points in the last cycle were hailed as a savior. Neither one ended up making the World Cup squad. Here they are both back on this roster. And Pepe, who we know has an axe to grind with Burhalter, was asked about the difference between Burhalter and Anthony Hudson, who's serving as the interim coach. And he said he feels like he's going to have more freedom under Anthony Hudson, which was an interesting remark. What the hell does that mean? Like, what, what, what does that mean? And what didn't Greg let you? And this isn't me standing for, uh, for, for Greg Burhalter. This is literally just asking, okay, but what ultimately, how does that manifest? You get the, well, first off, he's a striker. I've never met a coach or a manager, okay, that gives a crap how you put the ball in the back of the net. If you do it and you do it consistently, that coach is going to be fine. And it's not going to tell you, I need you to do it this way or do it this way, okay? And, it, and that's not to say that Pepe wouldn't understandably kind of be in this period where the guy that didn't bring him, Greg Berhalter, is not there. And so he may look at just things in a different in a different type of way. But in the you know, in the attacking third, Anthony, this is his quote, Anthony has told us that we that we have more freedom. If you feel and have the capacity to improvise something, he's going to let you do it. I don't know what Ricardo Pepe does and from an improvisational standpoint, that's never been necessarily who he is. So I'll really be interested to see these couple of games if he's been given the freedom now to be the, uh, the improvisational genius and master that was curtailed under the uh, Greg Berhalter. He's going to turn into Ronaldinho. <laughs> uh, but uh, we have to talk about Balogun because Twitter has been a buzz. Uh, so the sequence of events the last few days, uh, following Balogun, he was left out of the England senior squad for the uh, Euro 20, uh, 2000. 24 qualifiers, which we're going to talk about in our next segment. He was called up for England's under-21 squad. He dropped out of that roster with a quote-unquote injury, which was suspicious because his club team, Hans, has not announced any sort of injury in the last few days. And so everybody put two and two together and thought, well, does that mean he's finally ready to uh, commit to the U.S.? And amidst all this speculation, it turns out he might be in Orlando, which is the site of the U.S.'s second game in this window against El Salvador, he was apparently seen, and, and here's an uh, image of it here if, you, if you're watching us rather than listening. He was apparently seen outside this uh, uh, pup's pub or whatever it's called. It's some <laughs> restaurant in Orlando where you're allowed to bring your dog. Um, and so if he's in Orlando, then I think there's going to be a lot of fire here. Yeah, I mean, and it's a great place, by the way. You go there to chase tail. Um, the, yeah, so look, this is, this is fun. This is interesting. I mean, they're they're tracking his movements and they're tracking all of his social media and putting two and two together. This is, uh, you know, this is this is wonderful. Uh, for for those that that maybe don't know, real refresher course on uh, uh, Fullerin uh, Balagon, right? Twenty one years old, 
Yes. Um, 21 years old, and he was born in Brooklyn, which is why he is able to play for the United States national team. He has a U.S. passport. Uh, and then his parents, when he was very young, uh, went back to uh, England. They are from Nigeria uh, originally, and he immediately started playing and showed incredible promise, was in the, uh, uh, the Arsenal uh, youth uh, setup and uh, is still now property of Arsenal, has been loaned out to these teams. But he played under 17s for England. Uh, he did. He was involved in the U.S. under 18 team uh, uh, years back. Then England under 18, England under 20, and England 21. I mean, it goes without saying that this was somebody that you know, they had high hopes for when it comes to England, but they also have many of these types of players. From our perspective, this is a young player who is playing over, uh, in, uh, playing over in Europe. He's been loaned out a couple of times, uh, and this is his second uh, loan to, it starts with an R, but I know you just pronounced it completely differently, but what, how is it? Hans. <laughs> Jeez. All right, Hans, and it's spelled R-E-I-M-S, but he's, he's playing on loan at Hans, and he's scoring into the teens now in terms of goals. So this is a young goal scorer with a very good pedigree when it comes to Arsenal, and obviously has a U.S. passport. And is is you know a dual national, and we're, so we're in the, we're in this moment of wooing. We are in the wooing phase. We are in the recruitment phase, and this is nothing new. To be quite honest, when you, when it comes to the U.S. men's national team, uh, this is something that has been implemented over the years. Where you say, look, it's like a recruiting. Uh, you know, trip. You come in, get to know us, see what it's like being around the guys, see the game. You don't have to train. You don't have to be on the field. You don't have to make a decision, but at least you get the lay of the land and understand what a camp looks like and understand who these players are. And that's great because I want, whether it's him or anybody else that has to make this decision, I want them to be comfortable and confident that they are making the decision because this is a place that they want to be not just because it provides them with opportunity on the soccer field, but it's a place where they feel they can be their best. And like I said, they feel comfortable. And you don't get that from afar. You need to know and you need to go in. And there will be like in any recruitment type of situation, a desire to make him comfortable, like I said, and to have a good time. And so this is, I think, par for the course. And while U.S. soccer hasn't officially uh, and publicly said anything, there are enough pictures and there's enough evidence to support that this is what's being done. And you hope from our perspective that it is enough to woo him to the American side. But it goes back to what we talked uh, about in, in previous pods where I, I only want to go so far and I do want you to meet us halfway and say, not only have you laid out a wonderful opportunity for me, but even th if things are, are equal, I want to go with you because I feel something. Because if, if you do not ultimately feel something in your heart of hearts that is hopefully, <laughs> from my perspective, red, white, and blue, then I, then I think you become a mercenary. And I think that will manifest itself in your performance. And so this is good news. This is good news for the U.S. And again, it's more of a feather in that cap for the Burhalter era and what they have cultivated and done. And Brian McBride and Ernie Stewart, and even though none of them are there, this is still a lasting effect of you know, how to recruit 
to make sure that you're in contact, and then ultimately to uh, to be able to seal the deal. And maybe this trip is the one that he says, I had a blast and it was so wonderful. And I wanted to get out there on the field and this is where I want to be going forward. And from a practical perspective, to your point, he plays a position of need for the U.S. A couple of other news items. Zach Steffen, who was also surprisingly left out of the uh, World Cup squad, he's back. I think Matt Turner clearly goes into this cycle as the number one. So what do, what do you expect to see from Zach Steffen here? Can he make this even a competition again going forward? Or is he just fighting to be a backup at this point? So Zach Steffen has to perform something of a, of a delicate adjustment, right? Whatever the reasons were, and you know we can surmise from the outside, but the reality is that only he and Greg Berhalter know the real reasons why this didn't work. Whatever problems they were, and I'm not just talking about injury problems, and, and th those are real, but whatever Greg Burhalter didn't like about what Zach was doing, either on or off the field, he's got to fix those. Um, not because, not to, not to satisfy Greg Burhalter, okay, but to make sure that those aren't hindering him going forward, because not only does he have to fix those problems that are out there, but he also has to overcome now an established number one that is Matt Turner. And that's, that's going to be hard. You're going to need a string of games where you are playing out of your mind and everybody, including the coaching staff, even if it's a new coaching staff, says, holy shit, this guy is awesome. I can't believe how much he has changed. Or if it's a new coaching staff, how is it possible that this guy wasn't the starting goalkeeper uh, going forward? And you're probably going to have some, and I never want anybody to get hurt, but we all know how the world goes. You're going to have to have some Wally Pipping possibly going on here when it comes to Matt Turner and either because of injury or because of just not coming into camp or whatever it ends up being, not being or getting opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't. Uh, Miles Robinson in the squad. Uh, when the roster was released, I wondered why Miles Robinson was part of this group because he's the only MLS player. The U.S. is going to be playing games in April outside of FIFA dates. So presumably, that's going to be a mostly MLS squad. So why was he in this squad and not that one? To be fair, there was an explanation for it. I just missed it that day. Anthony Hudson said in an interview, they're going to be playing three games in a span of a week in that April stretch. And so given his physical condition, it made sense to bring him into this camp instead. So that's the reason. Are you excited to watch him play? Yes, because he was in pen. This was going to be the starter. And I do think that the U.S. was less potent without him. And that's how good he is. And that's how good he can be. You know, having said that, he's coming back from a big injury. And, you know, I think the, the respect that the national team has for him is evident in that while he's coming back from an injury and just has started his season with uh, with Atlanta, he still goes right back into the national team. And that's how that's how good he is and how good I hope, knock on wood, uh, he can be going forward. Because, you know, if if he is a starter for the U.S. men's national team in Qatar, I think I think you look very, very different in terms of that back line. And then one bonus one for me, I remain interested in the midfield composition um, Johnny Cardoso can play as a six. He has played as a six for Internacional, but I still maintain it's not his best position. I listen to an Internacional podcast on Globe every week, and there's a guy on there that's been banging this drum all season that Johnny Cardoso is not a six. He's an eight. 
So looking at the midfield options here, I think it's going to have to be him. And I don't think it's an issue against, certainly against Grenada yeah. and probably not against El Salvador either, although that's a little bit more of a real game. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll see. But, uh, I, you know, just looking at the roster, there, there's not really, you know, you know what I mean, that true yep. sort of defensive midfielder. So it'll be interesting to see how the U.S. lines up in the midfield in these games. I'm just, yeah, and I'm just in general excited to see this team going forward and we know it's it, it's going to change and there's a whole other group like you mentioned that's going to come in for these next uh, these next camps but I, i'm kind of piggybacking on what christian Pulisic said earlier in the week where he just kind of wants to get started on this incredibly unique and special and important road towards 2026 and the frustration that he has shown christian Pulisic has shown that we haven't gotten started on it uh, i think that will be evident in these uh these next couple of games in terms of other CONCACAF Nations League games, Mexico's two matches in this window, away to Suriname and home to Jamaica. That's Diego Coca starting his reign as Mexico boss. Uh, Canada's uh, matches, away to Curaçao and home to Honduras. After this window, we'll know what the semifinals are. I'm assuming U.S., Mexico, and Canada come out of their respective groups. Uh, there's a question about whether it's going to be Panama or Costa Rica as that fourth team. So it'll be interesting to see. Incidentally, two CONCACAF teams, Curaçao and Panama, they are going to be cannon fodder for Argentina during this window. Argentina is celebrating their World Cup triumph. Uh, they wanted to schedule two easy games, two opponents that aren't going to spoil the party. They have this whole big celebration plan. They're going to parade the trophy. Messi has made his way back to Buenos Aires for these celebrations. And I get the feeling the fans are excited to have him there. <laughs> well, you are absolutely right. It is. It's incredible scenes. And I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, but um, Messi came to uh, Miami and he went out to dinner and all hell broke loose because word got out that he was coming. Now, that was before Messi had won a World Cup and had achieved, if he hadn't already, but for, for everybody, uh, had, has now achieved you know, divine status. And when you look at the pictures that come out uh, and this was taken from a high vantage point. If you're not watching, uh, you may have seen it on online. This is him. He was eating at a restaurant with yes. his family and word got out that he was there. And so this is a crowd outside the restaurant in Buenos Aires. It is just insane. And I had I showed my wife this and she, you know, she obviously she knows who Messi is and she has followed this, this, it's not even arc. It's just a, you know, a, a slope up, 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 up. And she was just, this is insane. And she rightly said, so does that put him in the same level of Maradona? And she, so she went right to it, understanding immediately that while Messi certainly to a lot of people was a god before the World Cup, now with the World Cup, having checked that box, and I and I told her, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right in the way that he is revered. And even without the World Cup, he would be revered. But I just think that, and this is just a small little anecdotal type of thing to, to see happen, because this certainly can happen for other players, not, not a lot of players, and certainly not to the extent. But I think that there is not just a reverence right now, but this, this divine aura that is surrounding him as you're, you're not just not just one of the greatest players ever to play the game is having, you know, a piece of meat down in the, uh, at the restaurant on the corner, but as close as you are going to get to a God is sitting at a table down at the corner. 
And if I were to tell you that or somebody of, of, of faith and religion <laughs> that that was happening, you bet your ass that they would get off their seat and run down if for nothing more than you might not even get a glimpse of him. But just that you know he is in your vicinity and in your orbit, that golden god uh, aura, just even a sprinkling of it is just, it is just amazing to see. Is there such a thing as being too famous? I saw some comments to that video of people saying, I wouldn't want to live like that. I mean, I don't know, because neither of us have lived like that. But I it, would it, I think that, no, I don't think so. I mean, he, because only, only, the only reason I say that is that he has first off lived in a bubble, let's be honest, since the age of, well, probably since he came over from uh, Argentina, okay? So since he came to La Masia, right? So 11, 12 years old, he has lived in a bubble. He knows nothing else. And so I think he has guarded himself and protected himself with an understanding that this is going to ha happen. And it is, it, it has happened to a certain extent gradually, but I don't think that this is... I don't think this changes his lot in life, and I don't think that he would would change it ultimately. And he's got enough money and enough ability to fashion a life that protects him and the people that he's that he loves when and if he wants it. I mean, you're not going to a restaurant like like that without the knowledge that this could happen. Incidentally, he's on 98 international goals, so he'll probably reach the century mark in these games coming up. Uh, Brazil are invited guests to somebody else's party. Hmm. Uh, Morocco still basking in the glow of their semifinal run at the World Cup. Uh, they host Brazil in a friendly on Saturday in Tangier. They've called up all the World Cup guys. The stadium's going to be packed. Brazil's going in there with an interim coach, kind of a makeshift squad. Brazil could be in some trouble here. You think? Yeah. Really? So you think Morocco's kicking on? Morocco's kicking on. Oh, awesome. Uh, before, before we leave this, uh, just going back to you know, you know, the three teams when it comes to uh, hosting 2026 and the, the, the strange and unique um, space that you occupy as a host for the next three and a half years. Because you know, I was thinking about John Herdman, you know, for example. Um, the highest of highs of qualifying Canada and then <laughs> just getting their ass kicked when it came to the World Cup. And he continues on. They're not going to have the qualifying... Uh, like the United States and Mexico, all three are qualifying automatically. And so all of their focus and attention and everything that we judge these coaches on uh, is going to be relative to what happens in the summer of 2026. And it doesn't mean that, that Gold Cups and Nations Leagues and these types of things aren't going to inform us. But no matter what they do, as long as they are positive come the summer of 2026, they will have done their job. And it's amazing to think that it's such a small little sliver where they are going to be judged upon. And I mean, there are smaller slivers. I mean, look at the Olympics where you know, somebody can run down a, <laughs> a, a, a gangway and jump and that's your entire Olympics and that's what you're judged and you, and you train for years and years and years. But 
it's really going to be interesting to see ultimately what these coaches are viewed come the end of the World Cup in 20, like in come the end of the of 2026. So we'll see. Anything else, my friend? Can't believe I'm going to say this, but an excellent Sean Sullivan contribution. Ooh, he just reminded really? me uh, on the topic of Morocco kicking on from their semifinal run. Uh, they've now joined the Spain and Portugal bid for the 2030 World Cup. So Morocco could be hosting a World there we Cup. Go. And they've always been kind of a bridesmaid. They've always been around. Women's team also. Uh, so that, you know, like we said before, it, there's something in the water. They were the runners up in 26. It was between the Morocco bid and the U.S. Mexico Canada. Exactly. So I I do agree that uh, it's fun. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna still be, you know, I I still think your Brazil's gonna be okay there in uh, in Morocco. We'll see. All right, should we take a break? Yep. All right, let's take a quick break. We come back. uh, We got some Euro qualifying. We are in the midst of Euro qualifying, my friend, and some other stuff too, as well as MLS. Getting ready to take on spring. Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Mossy, we are in, you smell that? It's, uh, it's, that's Euro territory. We are in the uh, Euro qualifying season. And that's just in general, that would be a, a cool and wonderful thing. Uh, we love the Euros. But even more so now that we here at Fox uh, have gotten the rights to televise the Euros and obviously the qualifiers. So we're looking forward to a wonderful Euro, uh, Euro qualifying process and then leading up to next summer uh, in Germany for the Euros. Cannot wait. It's going to be fun. I've done uh, you know uh, Euros before when I was working with, at, with the ESPN. It's an incredible tournament, as we know, some of the great teams, some of the great players in the world. And this is the road uh, that leads to qualification for next summer. And, you know, the Europeans, they consider the Euros like a second World Cup. So there's not really a reset after World Cup. They, they remain in this sort of now mode, you know, the same way you have in CONCACAF and Commonwealth Ball teams. There's a little bit of a hangover after World Cup before you really get going and start to care about results the next cycle. The Europeans, go, they go right into these games where they're very important. Like on Thursday, our showdown on FS1, Italy versus England. That's being played at Napoli's home, the Diego Armando Maradona Stadium. Italy will be hoping that some of that Napoli magic wears off on them. This is, of course, a rematch of the Euro 2020 final, which was played in the summer of 2021, which Italy won on penalties at Wembley. Uh, and so these two countries meet again now. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you say that because, you know, when we talk about the, the arc of a coach from a U.S. perspective, you know, we'll throw in gold cups and people will poo-poo that and uh, we'll, you know, we'll throw in other different tournaments and then there's the World Cup, right? To your point, you know, the way that a lot of European European teams and Europeans look at the uh, the European championship, they put it right up there. So much so that, you know, they're talking about, uh, I was reading an article yesterday about the fourth bite at the apple for Gareth Southgate, right? And you, you think of well, what what apple is that? And you go back to the World Cups and the uh, and the um, uh, and the Euros, and they they kind of put them all together. And at some point, you have to win one of the big ones, and it's like uh, it's almost like uh, tennis or golf, where they have triple crowns and all those stuff, where they they put them all in the same basket. And as long as you are winning one of those, you have done great. And if you can win multiples, that makes that puts you in a completely elite uh, elite status. Both of these teams have had success. You know, some very good success. I think, you know, Southgate is really interesting in that he's being 
asked to continue on. That's a bigger conversation. We're going to have that conversation going forward on the State of the Union about uh, about coaches and about continuing. And we're going to talk about that later on this uh, this pod. But you know, this is, I think, the last bite at the apple for him. And it's it's not always linear. Uh, but I think ultimately over the last three tournaments, it has been success, but this would be huge, especially, you know, losing out to Italy. And yet when you look at Italy, they would gladly take, I think maybe the success of England, even though they haven't qualified for the last two world cups. Uh, Harry Kane, 53 international goals. He's tied with Wayne Rooney for the England record. So his next goal, he'll surpass him in sole possession of first place. He's still going strong. You've got Marcus Rashford, not in this squad, but obviously can play down the middle. So not to circle back to that topic from the first segment, but somebody like Balogun is looking at the depth chart. Do I really want to try to fight for playing time with the likes of Kane and Rashford or Pepe and DK? So, yeah, I mean, again, I don't. Know, I know you don't want that to be the reason he picks the U.S., but it, it is an no, argument. No, in the but US I'm, I'm also not naive. I understand that there there are practical reasons why you would go one way or the other. And Harry Kane is a huge practical reason why you could, you could have problems. Um, you know, as is always the case, there are stories on the field and off the field. You know, the, the traveling fans, this game is being played in Italy. And uh, there's already talk about uh, problems when it comes to the traveling England fans. They've even been told not to wear belts to the game. And so I, I hope, and, and I'm not going to wood here, that it all goes well on the field and off the field. And there are no problems uh, when it comes to the fans on on either sides but you know these are t- this is a classic matchup and these are teams that bring incredibly passionate and unfortunately at times historically uh violent uh fans and so hopefully none of that gets that gets, gets done italy is well you know versed uh, in terms of dealing with opposing fans coming in but they're already preparing for that uh, that kind of stuff so hopefully none of that happens that wouldn't work for me by the way because i wear baggy jeans i need that belt you to need keep that it belt up, right you, you couldn't uh, do the uh, the string or anything okay yeah what else another big game on friday france playing host of the netherlands the big news out of the france camp in the lead up to this match Didier Deschamps has uh, appointed Kylian mbappe the new captain of le bleu and there's talk that Antoine Griezmann is salty about it. He feels like it should have been him. So what? more turmoil in the France camp, as always. What, in what in what world? Why do you say world? Monde? Uh, mon, uh, yes. In what monde is Griezmann ever going to be captain of the French national team? Who the hell does he think he is? I love Mbappe, but it is amazing the degree to which both his club and the national team feel the need to. He's 24. Does he have to be made captain now? I mean, you can't give it to a veteran and Mbappe will inherit that eventually. I mean, it's amazing how they have to cater to him and make sure he's happy at all times. <laughs> I mean, are they are they catering to him? I mean, or is he just so? I mean, you just don't like it because he's young. He's a great player, but does he strike you as this great leader, a guy who exudes leadership quality? I don't know. Maybe he I, is. I don't know. Yeah, I never see anybody leading in the way that would say that should be the captain. On uh, yeah, you know, you know what? You're absolutely no. Yes, I do see uh, Kylian Mbappe leading in a way, whether it's leading by example. When they needed goals, where did it come from? It came from him. And and I know sometimes it's just performative and stuff like that. But if they, well, you know when they do the switch to the locker room and the people, I see him as the one that's screaming and yelling and talking to the, the players. So I don't think that this is crazy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I mean, he's he's arguably the best player in the world. Okay, He's already won a World Cup. He's been to two World Cup finals. I think he has done enough to prove his worth when it comes to the team on the field. And from a leadership pers- uh, perspective, I mean, hell, 
considering some of the things that French players have done in the past, the fact that he continues on and has become and has re- relatively unscathed, yeah, I think he's I think he's a fine pick regardless of his of his youth. The Netherlands, of course, the team that eliminated the U.S. from the World Cup in the round of 16. France's other match in this window, incidentally, is on FS1, away to the Republic of Ireland on Monday. Uh, Spain face Norway on Saturday. Some disappointing news in the lead up to this one. Erlen Holland had to pull out of the Norway squad with an injury. A tad suspicious as well, because I didn't see him pick up any injury playing for Manchester City in any of these recent games, but you never know. I guess in training, something could have happened. Uh, Disappointing, because... You want Erlen Holland to have a real substantive international component to his career and not just be one of these guys suffering the fate of a George Best or George Weah who, you know, it's all about the club because they're, they never get to play in major tournaments and such. Yeah, I mean, look, timing is everything in life. We all understand that and, and in soccer and there are, you know, golden generations and all that kind of stuff. But this isn't just some team that never got to the world. This is still Norway, okay? Right. They, ha- they have a history. There is a pedigree. When it, when it comes to playing soccer. And so, yeah, I want him to get that, get that moment. And it, is, it, 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 it almost can elevate him to an even higher plane because people are going to give him the benefit of the doubt because it is Norway. And, you know, Messi leading Argentina or Mbappe leading France is different than Holland leading Norway. First off, it would be Holland leading Norway back to tournaments. Uh, and when it comes to uh, a World Cup, obviously that's uh, that's in the future. But I want him to have that na- international career and, and have that cachet that comes along with it. Incidentally, Norway's other match in this window is against Georgia. They have a player in Varadskelia who could suffer the same fate, even worse than Holland, because to your point, Norway has some pedigree. They could make tournaments. Georgia probably is not. Well, yeah. So uh, unfortunately, Varadskelia, it is amazing that arguably the best striker and the best playmaker in Europe this season, one hails from Norway, the other hails from Georgia. What a, what a world. Well, in. it goes back to that question we had last pod about why the U.S. hasn't at least had one person that's kind of come to the fore and and broke and broken uh, broken through, but no such luck yet. What Sweden will face Belgium Friday on FS1. Domenico Tedesco now in charge of Belgium. He inherits this golden generation at a weird time where they might be. Yeah, it's so golden. I mean, are they are they golden? You yeah, think that, that next golden is as golden as the one that, that we thought? Were I golden? don't. He's still going to have to ride the Lukaku's and the Bruyne's and Courtois, and you wonder how much how many more years you can do that. Yeah. I mean, I'll still watch him because it's it, it's Belgium, and I like to see whether people can live up to the hype. And I don't know. Uh, what else? I thought this was very interesting. Belgium's former coach Roberto Martinez now in charge of Portugal. Yep. He named his first squad, and it included Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, now the games are against Liechtenstein and Luxembourg. Not exactly a murderer's row of opposition, so uh, they could, would have been fine if you or I was playing for them. So, but it's just interesting to me. There's a general axiom national team coaches have that stars don't make for great role players. When you have a guy who's been a big star for many years, when you get to the point where you don't think he's a starter anymore, you're better off not calling him up at all because it's awkward for everybody to have him on the bench. And I just see Ronaldo entering that phase. And I'm surprised this is a chance for a reset after the World Cup. I know we just talked about how European teams, it's not that big of a reset. But still, you bring in a new manager, Berto Martinez. You've got all this young talent. I don't know. Do they need Cristiano Ronaldo anymore? The guy's now playing in Saudi Arabia and he's, what, 38, 39 years old? I, I don't know. I just think you're creating an awkward atmosphere where you don't no longer need one. I mean, he, the guy's played in the national team for 20 years. He played in five World Cups. He did his part, 100 and whatever caps. 
And it, I think it's time to move on, frankly. Oof, that's a hard one. If you're Roberto Martinez and, um, you know, I got, I got a lot of time for Roberto. It, I don't think ultimately he got the most out of Belgium, but in a certain sense, he's fallen up here uh, with Portugal, which does have a wonderful, I know we're talking about Cristiano, but it does have a wonderful, I guess, supporting cast that maybe wants to be the dominant cast when it, uh, when it comes to this team. But I, I just, I, I think it's hard that's that's the first thing you're going to do in the first in the first camp as the new coach of Portugal. I mean, that's and that's we, a big old anvil that you're bringing down. We know Ronaldo loves milestones. He's had 196 caps, so getting to 200, nice round number. So I I also think that, and whether it's Roberto or anybody else, there is an element of I can fix it. I can fix him. I, I can be the one that brings out either either brings him back to the form that that. He has been, or I can be, I'm talking about Roberto Martinez here. I can be the one that gets him to buy in to not being the starter and the star. Therefore, I think that's dangerous. Um, and he doesn't have the advantage of having been in the camp and understanding what the dynamic is. And I'm not saying that people don't, uh, that Portuguese players don't love and, and respect Cristiano Ronaldo, but I got a feeling that he takes up a lot of air <laughs> in that camp and with that and with that team. And Roberto Martinez has to make a real calculated decision as to, to your point, if this is just a slow edging out of Ronaldo, or you just want to come down right at the beginning. And obviously, he has n decided not to do that. So. I don't know if it's a, a mix of both or he's going to say, yeah, I'm going to ride this guy as far as, as far as I can. But do you subscribe to that general theory that when you have a big star, when you don't think he's good enough to start anymore, you're better off not calling it. But that's why Scolari didn't take Romario to the 2002 World Cup or Dunga didn't take Ronaldinho to the 2010 World Cup. Do you subscribe to that theory or do you think there's some use in having Ronaldo uh, around as a backup? No, I think I think you get rid of him. I think it's more of a distraction. And by the way, I don't even necessarily think that it is uh, because the player involved doesn't think or can't do that, can't play that position or that position of being, you know, the more of a rah-rah guy behind the scenes guy. I, I actually think I don't, I wouldn't get as much from a Ronaldo off the field being that guy because it's such a weird change of dynamic that that's not, that's not what I want. That's not helping me as a young player now out here to have this legend over here on the bench. Even if, even if it's genuine in terms of his desire for me to succeed, I just think the dynamic is just so hard to, hard to work with. I don't know. Uh, we do have uh, an MLS game we want to highlight. Yep. The Portland Timbers hosting the LA Galaxy on Fox. Galaxy still seeking their first win of the season. As you know, I monitor your tweets. Yes. So a couple of interesting tweets you had recently that caught my attention. Uh, first off, the fact that all MLS games are on Saturday, uh, you have an issue with that. Yeah. I, I mean, so look, I, I know that I'm a junkie when it comes to MLS. I also know that I wear my MLS heart on my sleeve. Um, I, as the kids say, stand for, uh, for MLS. It is near and dear to me. It, uh, warts and all, I know it's not perfect, but, and I, and I know also from having worked in MLS and seen the, the growth of the business that having all MLS games played on a Saturday, uh, for MLS is strategic. And I think that there is, uh, there is a, um, a method to whatever madness you may uh, you may see. And I do think it is smart because uh, Saturdays are easier to sell. 
uh, and you define that clear type of window that we see when it comes to the NFL uh, and others in terms of that game day, especially with this new Apple deal where they can have it all in one place. So I get it. It makes it makes business sense. But, you know, this this new stark and barren MLS-less wasteland <laughs> that I'm now left with Mossy uh, on Sundays, it sucks. Sucks. I miss I miss having multiple games. I miss having games that I can watch because they all come fast and furious, and it's it's too much of a good thing. I can't possibly watch every single one of them, and then it's here and gone, and there's nothing else for me to to look forward to. And you know, I I so there's I can't change it. It's just the the, the reality of of what MLS is uh, is trying to do. And you know, there's some smart people that work. Uh, over there. And I also, I recognize that I'm a minority in that I watch the league as a whole. And the league, when I'm talking about Major League Soccer, has turned much more tribal and the affiliation um, and the affinity for the teams has become much stronger. And so for teams, that's a good thing. For MLS as a league that wants people watching the league in the way that there's people that watch American football, right? If there's an American football game on, doesn't matter who's playing, they're just going to keep it on. It's a comfort food. That's, what, that's, what, that's when you're cooking. That's what you want. And that's what MLS wants. It's become much more regional, though. And people, they, they wear their heart to their team. And whether it's a new team like St. Louis or one that's been around, that's the ones that they want to watch. And that, you know, so this deal is, is good for them. Someone like me that just wants to watch the league and wants to watch as much of it as I possibly can, like I said, it's uh, it's a sad day on Sunday. People say, "Well, why don't watch? Why don't you watch the other leagues?" Of course, I watch all the other leagues. I have all of the other leagues that I watch. A lot of that is in the in the mornings. Uh, so something else in terms of the domestic league is is something that I want, and it goes away. But who knows? Maybe this means that I'll watch much more USL or uh, League MX, or you know, put insert other league here. Uh, second topic you've been tweeting about: uh, the Galaxy fans held their big protest. Mm. And some of the quotes emanating from that are that they feel that the galaxy lack direction, they lack identity. And I could picture you rolling your eyes as you were reacting to that on Twitter. You, you called BS and all of that. I, I don't call BS in that they want to win. What I call BS on is that it's being <laughs> framed in the, uh, the anger and the frustration that the LA galaxy doesn't have a... Uh, a vision and an identity and a five-year plan. If the LA Galaxy was winning, nobody would be protesting. No would, nobody would be screaming and yelling. And there would not be calls for Chris Klein or anybody else, Johan Karaski or anybody else to be fired. Winning solves all of these problems. Well, I don't know if it solves all the problems, but it covers them up certainly to the extent that none of them are being yelled about. And, and, but that doesn't change the fact that this team also has not won for now multiple years. And this was a team that was established on being elite, on being a super club, and has not lived uh, live up to that. But call it for what it is. The team isn't winning. And until the team wins, there is a problem. But all the other stuff, Nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about vision and identity. 
Nobody, I've never heard anybody start screaming and yelling about, you know, the youth system or the identity or the, the five-year plan or the PowerPoint when the team's sitting in first place and winning and giving you that winning product each and every week. So that's, that's what I, I have a, a, a hard time talking about or a hard time believing when it comes to this. But knock yourself out and more power to you if you want to go and protest and do the things that, uh, that you're doing to make your, uh, make your point. But just know that it comes from a place of not winning. It has nothing to do with all the other stuff that they'll throw out there. Yeah, the Galaxy are in a weird situation. It reminds you of Manchester United the last few years under the Glazers where they've been unsuccessful on the field, but very successful financially. And so when their front office people are retained, it leads to people thinking, oh, I guess you care more about the financial part. So you think they're doing a good job, even though the team's not winning on the field. Can you understand how the fans feel frustrated by that dynamic? Well, I, I've lived it because <laughs> my job back in the day uh, when I worked for the Galaxy was twofold. It was to have the best uh, product on the field and to monetize it off the field. I actually got the off-field part right, and I didn't get the on-field part right, and ultimately I got uh, got fired. And yeah, I can I can understand that. But again, that only comes the the accusation that all you care about is money and the finances only comes from the fact that they're not winning. And if nothing changed in terms of the focus and the energy and the, uh, and the product uh, in terms of the finances, but the team won, nobody would be accusing anybody of caring all about finances and not caring about the, uh, caring about the team. So that's, that, uh, that's the point that, uh, that, uh, that I was trying to make. That is it. All right. Uh, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, ooh, it's time for Ask Alexa. Don't go anywhere. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, save $30 on the American-made Steel FS56 RCE Trimmer. Real Steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you uh, send us in your questions, either using the uh, social media platforms and that uh, ha uh, hashtag Ask Alexi. Um, and keep in mind that our uh, social media platforms when it comes to the handle is uh, SOTU with Alexi, or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. What do we got today, Mossy? We've got a couple of voicemails. Let's hear the first one right now. Hey, Alexi and Mossy. It's Alejandro from Las Vegas. Uh, this question is for Mossy. Uh, Monty, I know you're a connoisseur of many things, um, but I've always been curious. If you had to suggest one Brazilian dish that you think everyone in the world should try at least once, what would it be? Thanks. Take it away, my friend. Well, Brazil's greatest export, besides soccer players, is these Rodizio Steakhouses. I'm sure you've been to them. Uh, I think every major city in America now has a Fogo de Chão, or as you guys call it, Fogo de Chão. <laughs> um, uh, it's those restaurants where, you know, they bring the 
Yeah, yeah. Swords, as yeah, like Cat Donnelly they, says, yeah, with, awesome. with meat on yeah, them. Yeah, it's and, awesome. And you, I love you it. choose which ones. So if you go to those places, it, I mean, it's a meat orgy. Uh, my favorite type of meat is picanha to eat at those places. So that's an option right there. Picanha. Yeah, yep. picanha. A very popular Brazilian dish is feijoada, which is this stew of... This is amazing. Beef, beans and pork. This is amazing because I pulled up, uh, I Googled top 10 uh, Brazilian dishes. So first one, picanha. Right. Second one, I'm not going to say it. Fijada. Fijada. Yeah. Okay. So go on. What else? Uh, a couple of my favorites. Um, I, there's a restaurant called Bossa Nova right down the street here that I, I go to a lot. And I always get as an appetizer, coxinha, which is this like shredded chicken uh, in like fried dough. It's like a pastry type thing. Okay. It's, it's, ab it's probably my favorite thing to eat in the world. All right. Um, as a dessert, uh, you should definitely try brigadeiros, which is- There the, it is. Yeah, There's, yep, that, which is like this- Chocolate truffle. Yeah, yeah. It's this ball of chocolate with like chocolate sprinkles and made with milk. And it's it's absolutely delicious. My, my mother made them when I was a kid. And I mean- It sounds- I right, hear a couple more. Uh, I'm not going to say. Moqueca? Delicious fish stew. Did I pronounce that right? Is it, eh, I'm not pronouncing <laughs> that right. Bolinho de bacalhau. 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 Little cod ball. Vatapá. Vatapá. A thick stew made from shrimp and bread. Acarajé. Acarajé is another dish from Bahia. Black-eyed peas. And then payo de queijo and empadillo. Which is a chicken pie? Well, pão de queijo is what you. That's another delicious one. Sorry, to, to pão have, de queijo. De, that's another delicious thing Cheese to have bread. as an appetizer. They serve it actually at these Rodizio Steakhouse. They always bring you a little plate of it's these like cheese bread. Yeah, it's delicious. Oh my god! And far, farofa. Farofa. Yeah. Okay, my goodness. Well, it all sounds awesome, Mossy. And uh, maybe we'll do something in the future where we bring in some dishes here, and I will put them to the taste test, and I will give you. Uh, you you can put out whatever you want. And I'll give you well, my We had, in the pre-Sean Sullivan era, we did have a couple of food segments on this podcast. Remember, we brought in wings, oh, uh, yes. Cubano sandwiches. Do and, I remember? Uh, Do yeah. I remember? Yeah. Uh, what else we got? Uh, we have uh, another voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, guys. This is Andrew from Waxahachie, Texas, just outside of Dallas. Hey, I had a question for you. Um, y'all are talking about potential coaches of the U.S. men's national team. What do y'all think about Tab Ramos? I don't hear anybody mention him. I understand his stock might be a little low recently. Um, I don't really know why that is, where he's been coaching. But he was with the U-20 team for about 10 years, coaching them, coaching Pulisic and McKinney and Adams and our star players. And so there was success there. The players know him. Lawless, you've talked about how of a talented player he was, how skillful. Um, I don't know if that translates to the coaching. Uh, being in the office, but um, I don't know. What do you all think? Tab Ramos, can he do it? Next time you're in Hatchie, come have a cigar with me. Bye. Oh, nice. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Andrew, from Texas, uh, and thank you for the invite. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So Tab is is an interesting one. Um, keep in mind that there are multiple <laughs> uh, roles right now up, uh, We and, and we just don't know if it's two or three, right? We know there's a coaching position up. We just don't know if they are going to uh, merge the general manager and the sporting director together. But ultimately, I think it's going to be two positions, the coach and the sporting director. Until they name that sporting director slash GM, whatever you want to call it, we don't, we're not going to know who the coach is. We, and we mentioned that before. Um, I think that 
Tab Ramos, given his track record, and you mentioned it because he was in charge of a lot of the youth national teams. So he's worked at the Federation. To your point, he has coached and kind of overseen the development of this generation that now is arguably the best generation that we have ever had. So he has seen them come up from literally young boys into, into the men that they are uh, right now. Uh, he has uh, coaching experience. He has MLS experience, obviously, uh, in coaching the Houston Dynamo. He is now coaching the Hartford Athletic. Um, I, I see Tab much more in the mold of, rather than the head coach, uh, in the sporting director, GM type of role. Uh, and I'm, I'm look, I don't know, but if Sportsology or whatever this uh, outside entity the Federation has enlisted to uh, to fill this position, I would think it's going to be a long list and they're going to interview a lot of people. I would think that Tab would be uh, would be on that. To your point, it hasn't gone great for him from a coaching uh, perspective. Uh, he does have an incredible connection and he would certainly be somebody that would be interesting, but I just don't see him as a head coach, uh, but I could see him as uh, a possible sporting director. But speaking of of head coach, Mossy, we got, uh, we got asked last week and I promised you that I would give you my top five candidates, my personal top five candidates when it comes to the uh, the national team. I'm going to save that for uh, one for the road. So anything else on this before we go? Nope. All right. Again, uh, thank you to Alejandro and to Andrew for the uh, for the questions uh, over there on the State of the Union podcast hotline, 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. Keep those questions coming either with the hotline or out there on the social media using that hashtag Ask Alexi. All right, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, I will give you my top five coaching candidates for our U.S. men's national team. Don't go anywhere. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. And as promised, uh, I, I put together my top five U.S. men's national team manager coach candidates. Now, uh, as we know, the U.S. Soccer Federation is in the process of picking the role that will pick this next coach. So we still got a while, but it's never too early to start thinking about things. Some of these you will know. Uh, some of them you may not know. Some of them you will agree with. And undoubtedly, some of them you won't agree with. All right. Uh, let's start off at number five. Somebody that is, I think, probably high on many people's lists. Uh, Jesse Marsh. Certainly, he is available. Certainly, he has had, had an interesting uh, career on and off the field from a soccer perspective. Uh of late uh, getting fired from uh, Leeds, but his soccer trajectory as a coach has been fast and furious. And it has to be said up and down, which isn't necessarily uh, a problem. And I think that there are a lot of people that say this guy, Jesse Marsh checks a lot of boxes in terms of the person that he is, the coach he is, his background, and what the United States needs specifically for 2026. And I say that because all of these are relative to 2026, and I think I'd be the first to admit that 2026 is going to be, and I think already is, 
unlike any other World Cup that we have ever prepared for. And so this choice has to be right. And this choice is going to reflect the fact that is this is a very different type of World Cup hosting it and everything uh, that we have talked about in terms of the possibility and the value and more importantly, the opportunity. All right, so Jesse Marks comes in at five. Number four. Now, I've, I've tried to keep this to people that are available and or uh, gettable, if that's even a word. This is a guy uh, who I think is really, really interesting and I think would really resonate with Americans leading up to the World Cup and then in the World Cup. And that is Irvin Reynard, okay? Um, we know that he has just taken a position to, I guess, salvage the craziness that is the French Federation when it comes to the women's side and will be leading the French women into the World Cup. And while he may have signed a longer term type of contract, I do believe that there is a chance for the U.S. or for anybody to have him uh, lead the way when it comes to uh, a men's World Cup or a, a men's team or a women's team, for that matter, after the World Cup this summer. And as we have talked about, Mossy, I don't think this decision is going to come until this summer. So, uh we, he's coached Morocco. We last saw him coaching uh, Saudi Arabia. He is a, just from an aesthetic perspective, someone that seems to command a room and you can't take your eyes off of him. And he has had success with teams of lesser quality and lesser note. I think he has done more with less. And in the US situation, while he may be doing more with less when it comes to the actual amount of talent, the resources at his disposal and the opportunity, I think, will be greater than anything that he has ever had. And I think he would relish something like that. Uh, when it comes to number three, uh, our good friend, Patrick Vieira. Now, it hasn't gone swimmingly from a coaching perspective since he left uh, NYCFC, going over to Nice and then to Crystal Palace, which, where, where he was very recently fired. But again, this is somebody who has uh, historic knowledge and I think important knowledge and history when it comes to the U.S. Renard doesn't, it should be said, and so that's a knock against him. But Patrick Vieira, with his time in the United States, and I think a really su successful time at NYCFC, I think lends himself to understanding the challenges. And I do think you have to understand the challenges of coaching a U.S. team and understand the history, and I, I think respect the history of what has come before you and what it can be going forward. And I think the international role um, of coaching, I think that might be something that he would really enjoy. He is a cosmopolitan type of dude. He has seen and done it all. I don't think that he is elitist in the way that he views the sport. So I think that he can adjust to the realities of an American team, that it's not France <laughs> or, uh, or another team out there. And I think, like I said, he can get, he can get some good and more good out of a team. So Patrick Vieira comes in at number three. Now, number two is an interesting one because I don't think that there's anybody on this list that would bring more um, excitement, joy, and pride 
at representing the United States in the capacity of coach. And again, specifically for 2026, and that's Jim Curtin. We have already seen him basically say, if you want me to be an assistant coach, I'm there. I, I, I will do that. I think that while he certainly doesn't have the incredibly robust history and, and coaching resume that others do, and it's only one team, albeit a team that has been incredibly successful, and talk about doing more with less. And many of the players that have come through the system, he has seen at different times. I, I like Jim Curtin for a number of reasons, not the least of which is his character and his personality. And I think that we have to have somebody that not only the players gravitate to and respect and enjoy, but that the general public, not, not just the soccer people out there in the U.S., but the general public look at and can relate to and can grasp onto. And I think the way that Jim Curtin speaks about soccer it is inclusive in that he brings everybody in. When I hear him talk about soccer, I can hear people that might not know anything about soccer saying, this guy is somebody that I would follow. This guy is somebody that I can understand. This guy is somebody that can break things down to its most essential form and can explain things. And that's the type of person that I want leading. And I don't think that there's anybody, like I said, that values and respects and has more pride for being an American coach than Jim Curtin. And he wears it on his sleeve. And I love the fact that he doesn't take any shit and that he uses that pride and has harnessed that pride and won't suffer fools and won't accept that people have a bad perception of American players or American court coaches or American soccer. And like I said, has harnessed that and would use that as a power in the summer of 2026. So he comes in at number two. But my number one is Greg Berhalter. Now, I'm going to have to explain this because I think it's important. For those that have listened to me over the years, you will know that I have a rule in that I don't think that a coach for a national team should coach multiple cycles. I think it gets stale. And I think that regardless if you win a World Cup or you come in last, that you should say thank you and you should pass it on to somebody else. We've talked about a number of coaches, Mossy, in this segment, uh, sorry, in this pod, um, where they're bucking that trend because that was kind of conventional wisdom. Not by all, but by, but by many. And yet we're talking about the DDA Deschamps and we're talking about the, the Southgates. Um, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And Mancini's, these types of coaches that now through multiple cycles and some cycles that have not been successful where they are sticking with coaches. Even saying that, I still would have been fine had my criteria been fulfilled where we came to the end, we moved on from Greg Berhold. But, and, I, and I've said this before and I will repeat it, what has happened relative to Greg Berhalter? 
I do not abide by that. No, I do not think that that is ultimately fair. And so, yes, there is an element of principle. You have somebody in your midst who has been wronged, unfairly maligned, and has suffered because of the behavior and because of the actions. This is a man with obviously experience, uh, arguably, and if you go statistically, the most successful coach that the United States has had. I do agree with our guest from uh, last week, Brendan Hunt, that he did everything that was asked of him. Could he have done more? Could he have been more successful? Could he have made different choices at different times? Absolutely. But there is now part of me that one, wants to stand on principle and say, no, we're not going to allow that to happen to a good man. And in essence, we are going to, to reward him and say, we are going to give you another, another cycle here. And the most important cycle in modern history when it comes to the U.S. men's national team leading up to 2026. The other part, and we've already heard, is that obviously, internally, players support this guy. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to come out and say this guy sucks, okay? But we are now seeing multiple players that are backing Greg Berhalter. And I'm not saying that all of them do. But there obviously has been an affinity that has been created over the last four years that Greg Berhalter has been in charge with this group of players. And that's a good thing. And then the final reason would be, I don't think that anybody is going to work harder. I don't think that anybody is going to appreciate more the opportunity because of the things that I'm talking about, because of the shit that has gone on, than Greg Berhalter. And I think that he will relish and respect the opportunity, maybe more so than anybody that I have mentioned, because of all of the things that have, uh, that have gone on. Do I think that's going to happen? No. But this is my list. I get to make it. I think that these are all wonderful candidates. I'm, I'm not sure any of them will be ultimately interviewed. I'm not sure any of them will get the, the, get the job. There's a whole other list of people that I would be fine with and I'm confident with. Some not notable uh, uh, possibilities here include uh, Ali Osise, Senegal coach, uh, Steve Turundolo, the LAFC coach, Luis Enrique, who I've talked about before, who is just this wonderful free spirit and I think would people really would gravitate to him. So those, you know, those are some other things. It was just, this was hard making the list and then putting it in order. But this is my list. Please tell me who you think. Mossy, first reaction to this, though. When we had a Taylor Twelman on, he said that the U.S. Soccer Federation has to, quote unquote, swing for the fences on this one. Uh, you didn't find a place on your list for like a Jose Mourinho or Carlo Ancelotti. You think that's just a pipe dream and don't even waste no, your time? No, no, I don't think it's a pipe dream at all. I just don't think that they're right for the job. At this point, I don't think that this group needs this revered, for lack of a better word, um, older generation of a coach 
at this moment for 2026. Uh, so maybe that's ageist on my part, but I have to take into account all of the things uh, that a coach brings to the table and somebody that has been around, which makes him in your book or others look look that much better. I can see it as a, a possible detriment. Uh, someone that clearly wants the job is Thierry Henry. There's a type of person on Twitter that hears the name Thierry Henry and thinks, absolutely, let's go. He's the ideal choice, even though... The resume is thin. It's 20 games with Monaco, which didn't go very well. One season with Montreal where they missed the playoffs. And then an assistant coach with Belgium. I don't know to what degree you want to assign their results to him. Third place at one World Cup, but then crashed out in the group stage of the next one. He's a smart guy, a good analyst. You hear him talk. He clearly knows the game. He might interview well, and maybe you like his ideas, and you take a chance on him. Scaloni didn't have much of a resume. So I wouldn't be against Thierry Henry, but... It is funny that there's a type of person out there that just hears that name and thinks, oh my God, that would be amazing. You're clearly not swayed by <laughs> the name Thierry Henry. Someday I'll tell you why. <laughs> I, I mean, it's funny. There's no evidence at this point that he's a good coach. Now, as I, the sample is small, so I don't think there's conclusive evidence that he's not a good coach, but it, it's just funny that because of his name, he, he gets bandied about in some quarters as like this great choice. No, but, but I also will say that it's not that I discard the 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 fame or the awe factor. I also, on the other side of it, I, I don't think that players F off or don't pay attention to coaches simply because they weren't big names. Okay? I mean, hell, we just saw Scaloni coach the Argentina to the World Cup specifically because <laughs> it's what Messi wanted. Um, you know, so, and I know the U.S. team is not, doesn't have a Messi, number one, and is not, uh, and is not Argentina. But I just, I think it, I think it gets, I think it gets old real fast, the whole aura thing. Maybe it's, it's there for a minute when you come into the locker room, and then players can suss you out pretty quickly. And so, if it's a stupid drill, or if you're being told, you know, if it's a bunch of BS that they're feeding you, that it's coming from the mouth of a legend, that lasts about two minutes. And then you're like, this guy's a moron. And while he might have been an idol and I, would, I played him in FIFA and I wanted his jersey or I had his jersey, now the reality is standing in front of me and he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. I like that you said F off. You've only cursed like 10 other times on this podcast, but suddenly you now show some restraint. And <laughs> Well, you know, we also, we, we appreciate those that hang with us to the end, but we also recognize that, you know, that there's people that jump off midstream and, and whatever. So if you have listened this far, you get the, uh, the benefit of me uh, curtailing my cursing. Yeah, speaking of the end, I've got John Strong texting me research questions for tomorrow. So let's wrap this All baby right, up. my friend. Uh, listen, thank you uh, for tuning in. We will talk to you again next week. As we mentioned, we got all sorts of Euro qualifiers and then MLS games and all the uh, games coming on uh, around, uh, around, the, uh, uh, around the weekend and the international window that we are in. We will be doing a Twitter Spaces live and then it will be up on the feed after uh, the uh, US games. So that is... Uh, what are they, when, remind me again when the, uh, the games are, uh, Mossy? Uh, Friday against Grenada, Monday against El Salvador. Okay, and so we will be doing those immediately following the, uh, the game. So hop on Twitter, uh, ask your questions, and then if you don't, uh, you can still pick up the, uh, the conversation because we will put that out on the feed. 
All right. Anything before we go, Mosey? That's it. All right. We'll uh, talk to you again next week. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.